The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Postcards, the podcast that transports you from your living room to exotic, faraway places while travel remains temporarily off the cards. I'm Greg Dickinson, I'm a travel journalist at The Telegraph, and my mission to track down the world's finest travel writers and adventurers continues. And this week, I dig into the photo album of TV documentarian, novelist and travel writer Marcel Theroux. Marcel has published six brilliant novels, from thrilling historical adventures to tautly wound thrillers, but his talents don't stop there. He also regularly works as a correspondent for Channel 4's Unreported World, where he's covered everything from carjacking in South Africa to health crises in Mongolia to the oddities of the Chinese pop music industry. And as if that wasn't enough, he's also an accomplished travel writer, regularly rattling off foreign dispatches for such quality publications as The Telegraph. But this Renaissance man mixture of talents shouldn't come as a surprise if you know his family. His dad, Paul Theroux, is up there with the greatest living travel writers. And you've probably heard of his brother, Louis, who does shows for the BBC. I called Marcel at his home in South London. Hello. Hello. Hey, Greg. Oh, my God, you actually, you actually, you got video. And after a bit of back and forth about my lockdown facial hair... You looks good. You, Do you look, think? Yeah, it's it's a bit it's flash heart. It's a flash heart from Blackadder. <laughs> we both fired up our home recording setups and got down to business. Now there's so much good stuff to fit into this episode that we're going to jump straight into Marcel's first photo, which is of him as a young teenager carrying a shoulder bag, standing in front of a temple somewhere in India in the mid 1980s. As ever, you'll be able to see all of the pictures we discuss here online by following the link in the show notes. But before we get into the backstory of picture number one, there was a question about Marcel's attire that had to be addressed. Is it the, is it a baggy outfit or am I just amazingly skinny? Bit of both, I think. I think it's a bit of both. I just think I'm very skinny and I'm standing in front of Humayun's tomb in Delhi. And that would be, I think that's... February 1986. I have it actually, I did actually, was actually keeping a diary at the time, of course, because it was my gap year. But I'm pretty sure I'd either arrived in Delhi that day or the day before. And that was my first trip to India. And that was, uh, I was about to go and see the Taj Mahal. I think I went the next day. And then I, um, and then I traveled to Madras, now Chennai, and I taught English in an orphanage teaching English in an orphanage totally overstates the degree of my usefulness in that place, by the way. Um, it was more like sort of sat around and not being that useful, but having an interesting time. And what was it actually like for this gangly teenager we see in this photo to be travelling around India in the mid-1980s? So in 1986, it was... Well, it was amazing, that I think. And I, I feel lucky to have travelled... I mean... It, it's, it's it's possible for all of us to go and visit India and will be as soon as lockdown ends. And, you know, it's, I commend it to everyone because it's an amazing place. But no one can go and travel in India in the 1980s. And I think there was a specialness about travelling then because communications were still so poor with the UK. It was still a time when it was very hard to place a call back to the UK. So to communicate with my family... In an emergency, I would have sent a telegram. I think I sent one telegram while I was out there because I'd run out of cash. But otherwise, I was picking up letters at the post restante, 
And I don't know if, does, I don't know if anyone does that anymore, where you have someone addresses uh, letters to the post restaurant address at uh, the nearest post office, and you go there, show your passport, and they hand over any mail that's turned up for you. So in some ways, it was like um, it was like traveling in the nineteenth century. I mean, y- you know, you couldn't. I didn't speak to my parents on the phone once because the lines were so poor. So when you were away, you were really far away. And I I think I liked that. And so you arrive in Delhi, you visit the tomb we see you pictured outside and the Taj Mahal, and then you travel way down to Madras, now known as Chennai in the Tamil Nadu state on the southwest coast of India. Tell us a little bit about your time there. What What sticks in the memory? I was quote-unquote, working at an SOS children's village in Tambaram, which is a suburb of Madras. I think it's about an hour from Madras by the commuter train. And I had, I was, you know, I was just a very callow youth from South London. And I was, it was mind-blowing for me. I mean, Tamil culture is so vast, old and complex that it was breathtaking. I, I'm still friends with the sons of the Mr. Menon, who, who ran the SOS Children's Village. They both live outside India now, uh, Raman uh, Madhu. And I remember, for example, uh, going with them by bicycle one evening. We, it was, you, you can imagine how dark the streets were. And we cycled to a hall about 20 minutes from the village where I was living. And we went to this hall and this mandolin player uh, was performing and his name was Mandolin Srinivasan. And Mandolin Srinivasan is actually a really, uh, he was a a child prodigy in Tamil Nadu. And he played this uh, mind-blowing Carnatic mandolin, which I urge you to listen to. And I remember cycling back home afterwards on the bike, having idlis for dinner and thinking, this is amazing. So obviously your dad pulled through, very well-known and hugely respected travel writer. Do you think from 17-year-old Marcel, do you have aims and dreams to become a, a like a travel writer yourself. Well, it was <clears throat> it's funny you should say that. I went to India and I think my dad quite rightly didn't fully trust me to get there unscathed by myself. So he came to India with me and sort of dropped me off and left me there. But I think because my dad was a famous traveler and had written a great railway bazaar, I think there was always I'd always had the assumption that I would ha- and I was obliged to to undertake some kind of uh, you know difficult foreign travel. So it felt like it it felt almost obligatory. Actually, I definitely went to India. I think with the feeling that I was emulating my dad in some way. And have you have you travelled with him since? In as an adult, have you have you guys been away together? Yeah, a bit. Yeah, um, my dad always he tends to travel on his own. But I remember he wrote a book about travelling around the Mediterranean called Pillars of Hercules. And I had actually been to Morocco and Gibraltar shortly before he was due to go there. So I said, look, Dad, I'll come and kind of guide you around. 
What I remember from that trip is being on a bus with my dad, traveling through southern Spain, and my dad making notes, looking out the window, making notes in a notebook. And I was thinking, what the hell is he writing down? Because there was absolutely nothing to see out of the window. And to this day, it's still a puzzle. But um, I guess that's what uh, travel writers do. You know, these traveling around, these thoughts occur to them. But I've, I've no idea what he put in that notebook. I find it sometimes, I find it quite excruciating. If, you know, if I am taking notes... And if a friend or a girlfriend ever gets their hands on the things I've written, it's often actually quite really basic observations and almost a bit embarrassing. No, that's totally true. I've, in fact, I remember I, I was one of my friends was a film reviewer for the Sunday Times and I went and sat with him in a, uh, a screening of a film. It was the piano and he would make notes through the film at, so that he could write his review. And I remember looking over and the first thing he'd written down was piano, <laughs> which even he was actually, he, he was very embarrassed, but I totally, I think I would have done exactly the same thing in his position. You know that you do, but I think sometimes you have to write down really obvious things because you will forget them. So moving on to our second picture, uh, can you, can you describe to me what, what exactly is going on here? Hang on, let me just look at the picture. Oh my goodness, look at me. Why, what's that, why is it with me in baggy clothes? It was a definite look, wasn't it? How old are you here? I'm uh, 31. You know, look, look, I could do with a solid meal in that one as well. So, But I'm standing next to a uh, waxwork in the Brezhnev Museum in Yalta, Crimea in 1999. And for people who don't remember, Leonid Brezhnev was the general secretary of the Communist Party in the 1980s. Uh, I, he was the essentially the supreme leader of the USSR. And at the time... Uh, he he was regarded as a conservative, uh, someone who under whom the USSR was a superpower, but internally it was a period of kind of reaction, uh, a period a period when dissidents were persecuted and the economy was basically tanking. So the idea to me that he was uh, had a museum in his honor was extraordinary particularly after it was this was the end this was 10 almost 10 years after the ussr had fallen apart you know it was like finding an enoch powell museum and and what brought you to yalta and an encounter with this strange waxwork brezhnev back in 1999 i had a friend who was teaching english in odessa and uh, i had um studied russian at a level and it was something that i kept up with and in fact one of my first paying jobs was compiling a guidebook to the Soviet Union in 1990, shortly before the collapse of the Soviet Union made my guidebook completely irrelevant. <laughs> and I had, hadn't had been back since 1990, and my, uh, but my Russian was okay. And my friend was teaching in Odessa. So I went out to see him and it was amazing. Odessa, which is part of Ukraine, is this slightly seedy but cultured, very vibrant Black Sea city. And one day we booked tickets on a cruise ship, which was full of uh, Odessa's bright young things. And we cruised to Yalta on the Black Sea, uh, Crimea. And uh, I think we spent two nights on the cruise and 
got to Yalta, spent a couple of days there and cruised back. And I absolutely loved Crimea. But I that trip was important for me in another way, in that it was it really renewed my interest in Russia and the former Soviet Union. And I ended up going back many more times. And I, I've gone back subsequently both to make TV programs and write articles. And it's a place that I love I love visiting. And why is that? What, what's behind the fascination? It feels like the story of, of I'm going to have to say Russia just for consistency, but the, it feels like the story of Russia is, su- it's, it's like a long running soap opera in which an entire nation has been condemned to live through utopian schemes all in their most extreme variants, you know, whether it's communism or war, collectivization, famine, breakneck privatization, oligarchs, oil wealth, everything is done in its most extreme version. And the country is so big and so fascinating. And yet it all feels, it feels of a piece and it feels like a, uh, and Russians have such a strong... I've got to be careful talking about Russians because obviously the picture that you see is me standing in Ukraine, in Crimean Ukraine, which is a place that no longer exists because uh, in 2014, Russia annexed it. They took it back and uh, it's, it's now Russian territory again. But it's something about the scale of Russia and also something about having invested enough time uh, in its language, to be able to uh, get around and have conversations with people. That's what makes it uh, special to me. I'm pretty sure Crimea's on the red list, on the FCO banned list. I mean, you probably can't even get in, can you? Well, you no, no, you totally can. It's You totally can get to Crimea. I, 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 you, you're going to have to advise your readers about the ethics of doing so, since it's not recognised. But Crimea is a famous holiday destination for people across the Soviet Union. So it's had a lot. Of, it's got a lot of sanatoria. Famously, Chekhov had a dacha there. I visited Chekhov's house, and it's got this amazingly beguiling combination of sea and very steep mountains. And in fact, my friends and I took a cable car in 1999 from the sh- virtually the shore up to the top of this amazingly high mountain called Ipetri. And the cable car was utterly terrifying. It was, it was really, it was typically shoddy Soviet workmanship. And my friend had a whitey in the cable car there was a one-legged drunk man in the corner and the cable car attendant just let him sit there and the cable car was swaying as it went up the mountain and my I had pulled I had picked up some sea glass on the beach and my friend said show me your sea glass can you show me your sea glass and I realized he just was looking for anything to distract him from his you know, from the utter sense of panic he was going through, he was thinking that you know the thing was going to come crashing down the mountainside, and I and I pointed out to him that the you know the Russians had put a man in space. And I'm sure that the uh, you know Yuri Gagarin's module was probably not much better built than the thing we were in, but when we got to the top. Gavin refused to get back into it for the for the return trip, and it was really high up. It was so high up that in 
May, there was still snow at the top of the mountain. And we walked down and it got dark. And honest to God, I think we'd still be walking down if a family, if a Ukrainian family hadn't been driving by and we flagged them down, which is actually common throughout the former Soviet Union to just flag down random vehicles. And they gave us a lift to the bottom of the mountain. But it was, uh, it was a memorable cable car ride. I'm not sure I could 100% recommend that to travellers to Crimea, Greg. So maybe just double check their safety record when you go out there. This actually brings us quite neatly onto your third and final photograph, which is of another place that we don't normally recommend our readers to travel to. Tell us what's going on here. So you see me in a suit looking like I'm about to push a camera over a the side of a tall building. But what it actually shows is me helping my colleague, Kareem Shah, who probably took the photo, actually. Uh, we are on the top of the Tower of the Juche Idea in Pyongyang, North Korea. And this was at the end of 2018. I was making a documentary about North Korea for Channel 4's Strand Unreported World. This is the only way that you can visit North Korea under strictly controlled conditions. I'm marked as a journalist. And we'd had all sorts of bother. I mean, the fact that they let a journalist in at all was quite remarkable. But they it was a very hard place to work. And beforehand, I wasn't even sure what they were going to let us film because there'd been horror stories in the past of people being put on a bus and having to keep the curtains closed as they drove around and they weren't even allowed to film out of the windows of the bus. We were allowed to film out of the bus, but the minders who were with us all the time were very reluctant to let us even film just general shots on the streets of Pyongyang. So we'd gone up the top of this tower, which is a... This is, it's a tower that commemorates Kim Il-sung's contribution to Marxist philosophy, which is the, the Juche idea. Now, there's a lot of people who think that it's absolutely meaningless and that Juche idea is just means whatever the North Korean Workers' Party wants it to mean. Uh, no one in North Korea would live 15 minutes if they expressed that notion. But anyway, so this is a, it's a giant tower uh, from which you can see Pyongyang and you can see all those colourful little buildings uh, around the capital. And it's, it's an amazingly orderly looking city. It, it, do, it looks, you know, it's colourful, orderly. It looks like a stage set. I've, I've not actually been to North Korea myself, but I imagine after some of the horror stories you hear about travellers going over there, getting arrested for minor political infractions, I'd be really concerned not to step over any lines. Well, no, that's well, that you're right, and you're right to be, uh, you would right be right to be cautious. We did inadvertently cause offence a few times. We, we so when you're travelling around North Korea. You or you are you, there's no such thing as solo travel in North Korea. You're with minders all the time. Uh, we our chief minder was a man called Mister Ree, and uh, we were a busload of journalists. So they were probably a bit more adventurous or a bit more willing to push the 
boundaries of offence than most foreign visitors. And I remember one of us uh, was in the bus and we were on our way to visit Masikryong Ski Resort, North Korea's one and only ski resort. And one of the journalists asked Mr. Ree, he said, was it the case that the Supreme Leader, Comrade Marshal Kim Jong-un, got interested in skiing when he was at private school in Switzerland? And the Mr. Ree's face just, he went completely blank and he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I don't know what you mean. Because it's not, it's not officially known inside North Korea that uh, Kim Jong-un attended that Swiss school. Obviously, Mr. Ree knew that because everyone knows that, but he couldn't admit to it. So as a documentarian, I mean, on the one hand, I guess being somewhere as fascinating as North Korea is an absolute goldmine. But on the other hand, if you are, you know, you're being minded all the time and taken around on a bus full of journalists, did you kind of miss that freedom to go off and, and follow your nose? Yeah, totally. And it was so frustrating because you felt very close to, you know, out the window was this extraordinary country and you got little glimpses. Sometimes they would let you wander away from the hotel. And I think on the last or the second to last day in Pyongyang, there was a festival called Chusok. And it's a festival where people venerate their ancestors. And for some reason, the minders, by that stage, had, they liked us enough that they let us wander around a bit. And we weren't able to film, but we wandered around uh, by the, the, uh, the river. And there were lots of Koreans had come out and they were getting drunk. And a lot of them had brought urns containing the ashes of their ancestors. And they were having a ceremonial meal with their dead ancestors and it it felt really extraordinary because it was one event in North Korea that had nothing to do with politics and you you just saw ordinary people doing this thing that was some it was like a weird combination of I don't know Christmas and Thanksgiving I suppose and it was really uh, it, it, it felt a real privilege to see it it was really frustrating that we couldn't film it but we were able to talk to a few North Koreans. We had very hesitant conversations through our minder. And it was, you know, it was, it was both wonderful and exasperating because, you, you, you know, the, the phrase rare glimpse is used all the time with North Korea, so much so that it's become something of a cliche. But I really felt we were seeing something of the real emotional life of the country. What kind of thing were they saying? What, what would they, how, what, how would they re respond to you? Oh, they were saying very, they were they they remember they're talking to us through our minder, and our minder looks like a mind. I think it's really bleeding obvious to any North Korean that if they're with a foreigner, the person who's with them is uh, is a minder and is is working for the government in some capacity. But they would just say their names, what they did. One was a teacher. They were trivial and inconsequential conversations. But at the same time, you felt like the, these people were here because this was a meaningful event for them. And actually, I think it all went a bit 
uh, I think they there was a lot of drinking that day because I remember that evening as we went back from the hotel, there were a lot of drunken people reeling around, and it it was seemed there was and a certain amount of disorderliness, and it was really at odds with my assumption about North Korea. But I guess like like you know like anything like a family Christmas <laughs> for some people, things got a bit out of hand, and and Koreans are, are quite well known for um, liking a drink. But anyway, it was there was some uh, there was some heavy drinking, and it was a family holiday, and it seemed like quite a lot of fun. I wanted to ask you about so obviously your brother Louis also works as a TV documentarian. Do you guys ever kind of meet up and compare notes, or or do you say, "Oh, I'm doing North Korea this year, so keep your hands off it"? Well, he does. I mean, in fairness, he does different kinds of things. His his stuff is where he's immersed with you know, a subculture, usually in the US for a period of time, and he does less foreign stuff. I find it really useful talking to him, though, just generally about, um, you know, about how you work and and the frustrations and how you just trying to make better, just trying to make better programs, really. And what I'm, I'm always curious when I watch his shows and about something I talk to him about is, um, you know how they end up getting constructed. What happened when? What order did you put things in? What just the sort of inside baseball questions that you have when two of you work in a similar industry? And it, it, I find it, him very insightful and helpful to talk to about that stuff. And do you have any documentaries of your own due to air in the near future? They've got. I've got two unreportables that are already done that should be are coming out. One is. Um, one is in Japan, where I made a film about uh, this subculture of uh, junior idols who are 11 and 12-year-old girls, wannabe pop stars, whose fans are all middle-aged men. It's, it's quite an uncomfortable subject. And the other one I did was I, I just, just before coronavirus erupted, I was in Thailand uh, making a film about a Buddhist sect called the Dhammakaya movement, who are some people considered to be a cult, who have a mysterious abbot who uh, has gone into hiding and has been accused of money laundering. So it was a very that was very interesting. But th- those are in there, so those are on the shelf waiting to be broadcast. One other thing we'd be remiss if we didn't mention is that you've actually been off recording a Telegraph podcast of your own, haven't you? Well, I have. In fact, that was one of my high points of last year was that I travelled the length of Route 66 uh, with my producer and co-pilot, Pete Norton. And we uh, we went all the way from Chicago, Illinois, to California, to Los Angeles, to Santa Monica Pier, in fact, which is, the, is, which is where Route 66 ends. And we had lots of thrills and spills en route, which we've, uh, we've immortalised in audio and i hope that's going to be dropping in the not too distant future uh, i have it on good authority that it will and in fact for you listeners out there you can subscribe to the podcast now search for route 66 to listen to the trailer and i've one final question for you marcel which is you've just shared some wonderful stories from your traveling past but do you have anywhere you're dreaming of going to when the fco finally relaxes its rules and we're told we can travel again I mean, I've been sitting on my backside for so long that any kind of uh, excursion is going to be a treat. And right now, the thing I most want to do is go with my wife to a bar in the West End and drink an overpriced cocktail 
in glitzy surroundings, maybe two or three overpriced cocktails in glitzy surroundings and go home on the tube half cut. That's my ambition right now. <laughs> Marcel, thank you so much for sharing your postcards with us. It's been a pleasure. Next week, I catch up with one of the world's greatest living photographers, Steve McCurry, whose Afghan girl portrait of a young woman with green eyes in a red headscarf staring intensely into the camera ranks as one of the most memorable images of the last century. He talks me through a lifetime of capturing the moment on film, beginning with his first major trip abroad as a young man. So I went to India and spent, which was going to be only a six-week trip, turned into two years. That's Steve McCurry next week on Postcards. Postcards is presented by Greg Dickinson and produced by Pete Norton and Theodora Luludis. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating and a review where you're listening. Or tell someone else about the podcast. Maybe your wily Australian uncle, who recently bit the bullet and got himself a smartphone, would like to hear about the show. Or that university friend with whom you travelled to Asia in the early 2000s and have been meaning to get back in touch with ever since. This could be the ideal excuse. Just a thought. And if you'd like to read more travel writing from me, Marcel Theroux, Follow the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening.